Today we are in part two of our Christmas series, An Unexpected Christmas, and uh, today we talked last week um, about how the, the gospel writers started their gospels, and Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, he starts his gospel with the Christmas story, but he doesn't start with a story about an angel and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and and the wise men, he begins with the genealogy. And by the way, um, I know I've, I've taken flack all week knowing that they were going to sing that song, Mary, did you know? Because you all know how I feel about that song. And she knew, okay? And so the angel told her, it's in Luke's gospel. Um, but we're going to change the name of it. And somebody said this morning, Mary, did you know? It really ought to be called Mary. She kind of knew. All right, so we'll give them that. But, uh, but Matthew, he doesn't begin his, uh, his gospel story with the story of the angels coming to the shepherds and the wise men and to Mary and Joseph and all those people. He starts with a genealogy. Matthew begins by going all the way back to Abraham and tracing the, the lineage of Jesus all the way to Abraham, or really from Abraham to Jesus. And he had a couple of reasons for doing this. Number one was he needed to convince the Jewish people, and that was his primary audience, he needed to convince the Jewish people that Jesus was like really, really, really Jewish. And in order to convince people that Jesus was really, really, really Jewish, he had to be related to Abraham because Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. But his secondary goal was also to demonstrate the fact that Jesus was related to King David. Because if there was going to be a literal, physical Messiah, then, the, then that Messiah had to be related to, to King David. Because God had promised the Israelite nation that, that you're going to have a, there, there will be a Messiah and he's going to come from, from the blood of David. And so, so Matthew has to connect Jesus to David. And so Matthew begins his his Christmas story with his genealogy. But as we discovered last week, he doesn't necessarily stick on script. He, he kind of goes off script on a, a several different times. And he goes out of his way to, to highlight and italicize uh, so, some bold and, and crazy people that are kind of related to Jesus. And, and look, every family's got those people, right? Um, we all have that kind of one crazy uncle that we, we really kind of wish we didn't have to invite to family reunions, but we do. And if you're thinking, I don't know that our family has that person. Well, I hate to break it to you. Probably you. But, but Matthew goes out of his way to highlight some people. And he, he includes two or three women who, who weren't even Jewish. And, and, and a couple of them, these women, they didn't have so great reputations. And he, he pauses on the story of David and Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. And, and he, he stops there and it's like, does anybody really need to be reminded of that story? Because everybody that was a Jew knew that story. And so he highlights some, some people that are, are kind of interesting and colorful and, and R-rated and, as we're going to see today, kind of creepy characters. Now, why would he do that? Why would Matthew, if, if your point is to convince this group of people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is, that he is connected to Abraham, that he is connected to David, that he is exactly who he claims to be, why would you highlight all of these kind of shady characters? Well, not only because they're a part of the story, but because they're the point of the story. Matthew was about to unfold the story, the teaching, the, the, the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and as a person who kind of had a past himself, Matthew, he, it was very evident that he wanted his audience to understand the nature and the message. And here was, here's what the message was. That up until that time, up until the time of Jesus, uh, every religion, even Judaism, okay, every religion ha had a, a, a way that they approached their God. And anytime religious people 
would, would begin to act religious. And anytime people began to think about a religious approach to God, it, it was always kind of came down to this. It, it was pretty much summed up this way. About, I come to God based on what I have done. Or what I haven't done. I, I, I've done all the right things and I haven't done all, any of the bad things. I, 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 have, I have promised to do good from here on out. I am keeping all of the things that I'm supposed to do. Or not do. And so consequently there are some self-righteous people. Right, who feel like they, they can approach God and they can approach God in their prayers and kind of try to manipulate God to, to get their crops to grow and to get their babies to grow and, and, and get all these good things to happen to them simply based on what they have done. And it's kind of like, hey, here, here I am, look at me, what I've done and, and what I've promised to do. We said last week that basically, you know, this is just called self-righteousness. That my personal righteousness is good enough to get the attention of God. And Matthew, the, the, the gospel writer Matthew, he'd grown up around that. And, and Matthew understood that as a former tax collector, that he wasn't ever going to make the cut with God if it meant coming to God based on his own personal self-righteousness. If we can only come to God based on all the good that I've done because of what my occupation has been, I will never get there. I will never be able to approach God. The other problem was simply that, that there are a lot of people who feel like they don't have any self-righteousness, that they are sinners, that they've done things, that they, they have a past, they're ashamed of things that they've done, and, and, and they've got things in their lives that will forever, in their minds, distance themselves from God. But the problem is, as long as an individual believes that you know, their standing with God is, is based on their own self-righteousness, as long as I believe that, then consequently I can have nothing to do with God. And that was Matthew's story. Matthew understood that the story and the teaching of Jesus, though, introduced a brand new way of thinking. And it wasn't brand new in the sense that it, had, that it hadn't been around. It was brand new in the sense that it had been lost. It had been lo- this idea, this way of thinking, it had been lost because of the law and all the things that the law required that, that people do. And, and Matthew understood that the teaching of Jesus, though, was very different. When, when it comes to Jesus, suddenly mankind had access to God. Not based on what they had or hadn't done but based on what had been done on their behalf. And this was a brand new way of thinking. This was a completely new approach to God. This was a brand new worldview. And Matthew knew that the story that he was about to tell was so different than than any other story that had ever been told in the history of the world at this point. He didn't want his audience to get lost in the details and lost in the dialogue. And so it's as if his attempt to demonstrate that Jesus was related to King David it's like he went out of his way to make sure that his audience knew that, that Jesus was related to sinners. And not just any sinners. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about some sinners that could win awards for their sinning. And it was people that you would try to distance yourself from. People that had sin that in most cases they would try to keep secret. And stuff that they wouldn't want anybody else to know about. And so I think Matthew, with a, with a grin on his face probably and a gleam in his eye, uh, he, he starts to write down the genealogy of Jesus, and he goes out of his way to underscore all of these different characters. Let's look at the, at the genealogy of Matthew. You can find it in Matthew chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, flip to Matthew 1, and then flip to Genesis 2, because we're going we're gonna to be in both of those spots. Here's what the genealogy of Jesus begins. Here's how it begins. A record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, it's important that, that everybody know that he's connected to David and, and to Abraham. So Matthew goes on, says, Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and. And here's where he begins to, 
to pause for the first time to cause Jewish readers who, who would have been very familiar with the Old Testament and cause readers who, who maybe were not so familiar with the Old Testament to pause for a moment. And he goes, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now, if I were to ask you to, just to turn to the person next to you and kind of give a short synopsis uh, on the life of Judah or the character of Judah, or just tell the person next to you what you know about Judah, it would probably be a very short conversation, all right? Uh, but if you were raised in the church, and maybe even if you weren't, and I were at, to ask you to turn to the person next to you and tell, tell them about the, one of Judah's brothers, you might spend three or four minutes, the next three or four minutes, telling the person next to you everything you know about Judah's brother, because Judah had a very famous brother. In fact, when Matthew says Judah and his brothers, he refers to the fact that Judah had 11 brothers. And in fact, the 11 brothers plus Judah, they make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, that's, you, you read about that in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes. That's these, this group of brothers. And in fact, Judah's father, Jacob, he would be renamed Israel. And that's where we get the name Israel. And so as he begins this genealogy, his first bump in the road is, is Judah and his brothers. Now, Judah's famous brother was... All right, y'all going to have to read your Bibles more. All right, Joseph. Joseph was the famous brother. And maybe you've heard of him, you know, the code of Joseph and the code of many colors. Maybe you saw Donnie Osmond reenact that or something like that. But even if you're not sure who he is, you probably know something about the fact that there was a guy who lived a long time ago named Joseph, and he had a really pretty coat, and it was made of many colors, and his brothers were very jealous of him. And his brothers decided to get rid of him. And why did the brothers... Why were the brothers jealous of him, and why did they want to get rid of him? Yeah, because he was the favorite. And so, so kids, if there are any kids in the room, just close your ears on this. Um, but here's what everybody just needs to recognize, is that every parent has a favorite child. All right? Every parent has a favorite child. And I know you're not supposed to say that, and I know it, it's all dependent upon which child is present. Yeah, there you go, Caleb, right? Every parent has a favorite child. Um, my sons point out all the time to my wife who her favorite child is, and it's always the opposite one, right? Um, but, but Joseph and his brothers want to get rid of, or Judah and his brothers, they want to get rid of Joseph because he's the favorite. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, and you compare it to the story of Judah that I'm about to tell you, and you were God, and you had to choose one of these two brothers, or maybe any of the other twelve, which you were going to bring your son into the world. My, my hunch is, is that you would have skipped over Judah and you would have picked Joseph. Because everything about Joseph's story is incredible. Everything about Joseph is absolutely remarkable. I mean, he's an extraordinary man of character and of integrity. He's got incredible discipline. He's, he's persecuted and he's punished. He's treated unjustly. And yet he does great things for the people that treat him unjustly. And, and at the end of, of Joseph's story, he becomes, and I'm not making this up, you, you can read it in the book of Genesis. He becomes a savior. He saves his family. He saves uh, Pharaoh. He, he saves Egypt. He saves all the Egyptians. I mean, he becomes the savior. He is the perfect picture of Jesus. If there were ever a boy to pick that would be the, the, the mirror image of the Messiah, it would be Joseph. I mean, Joseph is the perfect candidate. There's so many parallels between Joseph's life and the life of Jesus. And yet God looks down and says, hmm, i got to pick one of those 12 boys. I think I'll pick Judah. <laughs> you would have never picked Judah. 
Why? Why would you pick Judah? Because that's the point of the gospel. That's the point of the story. The, the story of Judah, it actually begins in Genesis 37. And if you brought a Bible, flip over there if you want to follow along. Because Judah, the story of Judah, he is essentially a footnote in the story of his brother Joseph. He, he's just a footnote. He, he's, he's a footnote in the story of his, of his famous younger brother. Here's how the story begins. And the setup of the story of, of, of Judah and his brothers is simply this, that jo- Joseph is the favorite son. Uh, while you're not supposed to admit that you have a favorite child, Joseph's dad is very, very public about his son being his favorite, that Joseph is the favorite. Everybody knows that he's the favorite. And so Judah and his brothers, they want to get rid of him. And so they take all the brothers, they go out into a field, and they take Joseph with them, and this is what it says. So, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornament robe he was wearing, his coat of many colors, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it, and as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So Joseph and his brothers, they all go out into this field, and the brothers say, here's our chance, and they beat him up, and they throw him in a well that has no water in it, and then they sit down to have lunch. Now think about that. They're, like they don't leave from the site of the well like it's there and they're sitting down and they're having lunch and it's like hey anybody up there can you get me out of here and it's like y'all hear something and they just they start eating their lunch and while they're eating lunch they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming down the road and it says so verse 26 says so Judah said to his brothers what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood kind of like guys I've been thinking if, if we just kill him what do we really get out of that I mean, we, we could kill him, and that would be all right, but what do we get out of it? Instead, we can sell him, and we can make a little profit off of this. We can, we can sell him into slavery, and we can get something out of this. And, and apparently, Judah was the leader among the brothers, okay? He's not the oldest, that's Reuben, but God didn't choose the oldest brother either. But, but he's the influencer, he's, he's the leader. And so verse 27 says, Judah speaking, says, come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. How kind and compassionate and merciful you are, Judah. We won't kill him. We'll just sell him. And so they sell Joseph to, to the Ishmaelites. And they load him up and they chain him wrist to wrist with all the other slaves that they're taking to Egypt. And they march him off to Egypt. And from Judah's perspective, this is the last time that he's ever going to hear about or see his brother again. And then they split up the, the bronze and the copper coins among the ten brothers. And off Joseph goes to Egypt as a 16 or 17 year old teenager and he's gone. And they take their fan, his fancy coat and they, they dip it in some animal blood and then they do just something unthinkable. They, they go to their father and they break his heart. They go to their mother and they break her heart. They, they, they go to both their parents and they say, say, we found this, we found this coat and, and an animal clearly found Joseph and there's nothing left of Joseph. We couldn't even find his body, but there's all this blood and so, so clearly something bad has happened. And they said, that's all that's left of your favorite son. And they break their father's heart. And they choose to live with the secret that they determined that they would go to their grave with. And before long, all the money from the sale is gone. But the memory's not. And the guilt is not. And just the whole idea, the notion of selling their brother into slavery, they, they choose to and they are, they are forced to live with that for the rest of their lives. In fact, 
For over 20 years, every time that they gathered with their father, there'd be an empty chair that was sitting there that was at the table. That was Joseph's chair. Every year on his birthday, his father would mourn once again the loss of his son. And Judah knows this, and he never cracks, he never breaks, he never confesses. He just mourns with the rest of the family like, like, like he doesn't know anything has happened at all. When he knows in his heart that he is ultimately responsible for what's happened to his brother. Because he's the influencer, he's the leader. He's the one that, that could have changed the destiny for, for Joseph. Now if you read through the book of Genesis and you read the story of Joseph, you know that Joseph goes on to Egypt and you, you find out what happens to Joseph. And it's this incredible story. If you haven't read it, you need to go read it. It's just a fantastic story. In, in fact, in Genesis, um, we only get the story of two of the brothers. All right, we don't know any, really anything else about the other ten brothers. We only get the story about the two brothers. Joseph, which is this incredibly long story. In fact, it's the longest uh, uh, single story in all of the Old Testament about a singular individual character. And then we get the story of Judah. And Judah only gets one chapter in the Old Testament. But in this one chapter about Judah's life, we discover, again, what an interesting person. And really, his story just goes from bad to, to creepy. So here's what happens. Joseph is gone. He, he's gone. They've sold him into slavery, and, and Judah decides that he's got to get on with his life. And so he's a shepherd, and he shares a town with his brothers, and eventually he gets married, and he's got a bunch of kids. And his first three kids, they're all boys. And his first son marries, uh, marries and he, he marries him off to a woman named Tamar. And then his second son gets married, but his third son's not old enough to get married yet. And so the Bible says, and I wish we knew more detail about this. I wish we had more to go on. But it just says that the older son did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he died. We don't know what he did. We don't know what happened. We just know that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he died. And a little bit later, the, the second son does evil in the sight of the Lord, and he dies. Well, well, Judah, you know, I'm sure he's grieved about this. He's lost a son. But he, he goes to Tamar, his, his first daughter-in-law, and according to the tradition and the customs of the day, he's now responsible for this single widowed woman. This, this woman had been married to his oldest son. And so he says to her, look, uh, I'm going to take care of you. It's my responsibility. It's what the law teaches. It's what our customs teach. I'm, I'm going to take care of you. And so when my third son is old enough to get married, I'm going to marry you off to him and my family. That way we, we will be able to take care of you. We'll provide for you. We'll, 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 we'll take care of all your needs. We'll protect you. All of this stuff. In the meantime, you have to grieve as a brokenhearted widow that, because that's sort of what keeps you in the company of someone that I can take care of. And so she begins the grieving process, and she waits for the younger son to grow up so that she can marry him to be taken care of. And that's her only hope of provision. Uh, that's it. Other, otherwise, she's just going to go be an outcast in society. She's going to be open and vulnerable to all sorts of horrific things because she's a, a single widowed woman. Well, time goes by, and once again, consistent with Judah's character, he forgets all about Tamar. And he forgets all about this promise that he's made to marry her off to, to his youngest son. Well, uh, some more time goes by, and apparently some years go by, and she's becoming someone who, who can't provide for herself. She's in a category that makes her very vulnerable to, to, uh, to predators. And, and so she decides that she needs to take matters into her own hand. And, and this is, look, this is going to be odd for us to, to talk about this, and, and it's odd to read about it, but just understand, this is the culture of 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And so she comes up with a plan, and her plan is to dress herself up in disguise and as, as a temple prostitute. 
And she covers her face and she goes and sits by the gate. And Judah, because he's a prominent member of the town, he's an influential man in this town, he would, he would pass in and out of the gate and he would sit at the gate with the other elders of the city and, and they would make judgments. And so she sits at the gate and we don't know how many days she sits there, but, but she sits there and, and Judah comes by one day while she's there and he begins a conversation with her. Or maybe she initiates the conversation, we don't know. But, but what we do know is that he doesn't recognize her. And so they, they begin to, to have a conversation. And by the way, him not recognizing her should tell you how long it's been since, since he's actually paid any attention to her. And so he doesn't recognize her, and the conversation continues to, to go. And eventually he decides that he's going to hire this prostitute. And so they talk, and they decide that the payment would be a goat, which I guess is the going rate for that sort of thing 3,000 years ago. Don't know. Anyway. He didn't have the goat for him, which of course he didn't, right? He didn't have the goat for him, for, for, with him, and so uh, they go off somewhere and, and they, they take care of their, their agreement, and he doesn't ever recognize who she is. And, and eventually, as he's going back, she says, I, don't, I can't pay you. I don't have the goat. I'll send a goat to you later. And she says, okay, well, that, that's fine, but I want two things in return. I, I want a kind of a pledge that you're not just going to do your thing and then you know leave me high and dry I, I want I want a pledge from you and so she says I want your signature ring which is basically an emblem a little thing that he would wear on a cord around his neck that was like a stamp that he could uh he could sign stuff with and then she says I want your your staff your, your rod or your staff which was a, a an item that represented strength this is a big deal that she's asking for those two things they're very important items and so what could he do I mean he owes her a goat right and he doesn't have a goat. And so he says, okay, I'm going to give you these two items. And then she leaves to go home and he leaves to go home. And when he gets home, he, he finds one of his servants and he says, hey, look, um, I met with this temple prostitute and I don't want to get into all the details about it. But basically, I owe her a goat. Don't ask any questions. And so go get a goat and go back into town and, and find this temple prostitute and give her the goat. The servant says, okay, not asking any questions. It's bizarre, whatever, but I'll do what you've told me to do. And so this servant goes into town and he begins uh, looking for Tamar, looking for this, this temple prostitute, and she's nowhere to be found. He can't find her anywhere. And so he goes down to the gate where all the, where all the men would sit, and he says, hey, where's the temple prostitute that sits at the gate? And all the men are like, there's not a temple prostitute that sits at the gate. We don't know who you're talking about. We don't know what you're talking about. We, we don't know anything about this. And so the servant continues to look, and finally he just gives up. He says, I can't find her. And he goes back home, and he takes the goat back home with him, and he goes to Judah, and he says, Judah, look, I know you gave me this job. I know what you told me to do, but she's not there. Like, nobody knows who she is. We don't know. Nobody knows anything about her. And so Judah, not wanting to make a big deal about this, because this is kind of the thing that you don't make a big deal about, right? He says, well, we'll just hope that nobody ever finds out, and we'll just kind of sweep everything under the rug. And so they just let things go by. Time goes by, and three months later go by, and, and three months later, somebody comes running up to Judah's house, and they knock on the door, and they say, Judah, Judah, you're not going to believe this. Guess what? Tamar, you remember Tamar, your, your first daughter-in-law, remember her? And the phrase that the scripture uses is that she has played the harlot. Tamar is pregnant. She's pregnant, and she's never remarried, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is scandalous, right? And then Judah does what every person who's got a secret does. Who, who, he does what every person who's pretending to be something that they're not does. Judah gets really, really self-righteous. Let me ask you. You ever met someone who just 
I mean, they were so self-righteous. And, and a year later or five years later, you discover that they have, they have a secret. You ever met anybody like that? You ever met anybody that just hammered and hammered and hammered away on an issue and then a few years later you find out that in their, in their personal life that they struggled with the very same issue that they just hammered everybody else on? Did you know that that's human nature? Did you know that if you were an unbroken person, did you know that if you have a secret, that if you have a point of shame and nobody knows but you, did, did you know that it oftentimes manifests itself in a sense of self-righteousness? And so do you know what Judah does? Judah says, my daughter-in-law has shamed my family. She has publicly shamed my family. She must be burned alive. And say, so, wait, whoa, 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 Judah. Calm down, buddy. Judah, is this the same Judah who sold his brother into slavery? Is this the same Judah who carries the secret of what happened to his brother that nobody's going to know about, that he's going to go to his grave with? Is this the same Judah that promised to take care of his daughter-in-law and didn't keep his promise that forced her almost into a life of poverty and a life of shame? Is this the same Judah that hasn't done what he said he would do? Is this the same Judah who had relationships with a temple prostitute? It is, and Judah's like, she's got to be burned. She shamed my family publicly. And so he gets the community to support him, and, and, and they're going to burn Tamar alive at the stake. But of course, Tamar has something that belongs to Judah, doesn't she? In fact, here's what the Scripture says. That, that it's kind of funny. She sends a servant, and you know, the day has come, and apparently um, they've got it all worked out. They've got the, the stake, or however they did it. They, they've got all that set up, and, and Tamar is set to be burned alive. And we don't have a lot of detail about it, but Tamar sends a messenger to find Judah. And here's what the message says. The messenger runs up to Judah, and, and he's got the staff in one hand, and he's got the seal in the other hand. And, and he says, Judah, Tamar wants me to give you a message. And here's the message. I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And Judah recognizes the two things. And he says, yeah, okay, we're not going to do that. Uh, no fire today. Every, everybody go home. We're calling the whole thing off. It was a really, really bad idea to begin with. We're not going to do that. Everybody just go home. And he goes to Tamar and he sees Tamar. And he falls down on his knees and he says, Tamar, you are more righteous than me because I didn't do what I said I would do. You are a more righteous person than I am. And Tamar gives birth to a little boy. And his name is Perez or Perez. And he's in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Now I'm thinking, Matthew, you're writing this genealogy, right? You've skipped over a lot of different names. You probably could have skipped that one too, right? You could have just skipped over, over that. But because now you've messed the whole thing up. We've got a child in the line of Jesus who should have never been born. We've got a child who is, who is the child of a daughter-in-law and a father-in-law. How scandalous is that? I mean, he left out a few names. He could have left that one out too, right? Well, the story's not over for Judah. Because about 20 years after he thinks that he's never going to see his brother again, there's a famine in the land. And this is the part of the story that maybe you remember from Sunday school. But, but Jacob calls all of his sons together and he says, hey, you've got to go to Egypt to buy some grain. Uh, because if you don't, we're all going to starve to death. So you've got to go to Egypt. And, and so Judah's kind of the leader. He's the influencer. And so he gets his brothers, him and Reuben, and, and they decide that they're going to lead the charge. And they go down to Egypt and they're going to buy some grain. And guess who's in charge of the grain? Joseph. He's the prime minister of Egypt. He, he went into Egypt as a slave, and now he's the prime minister. It's an incredible story. Hopefully you've read it you know, or you know something about it. 
Now remember, Joseph, he's been in Egypt for a long time. The last time that, that his brother saw him, he's just a teenager, and now he's a 30-something-year-old, and he dresses like an Egyptian, and he walks like an Egyptian, and he talks like an Egyptian. And, and so, so they didn't recognize him. Some of you got that. Thank you. But Joseph recognizes him. And, and Joseph recognizes him, and so he begins to kind of mess with him a little bit. And he talks to him, and he kind of taunts him a little bit, and he sets him up, and he tries to decide if they've really changed or anything. And the Bible says that in some cases in their conversation, he gets so overwhelmed with, with compassion and emotion that he just he, he has to leave the room, and he runs out, and he cries. And, and then he just kind of gets himself back together, and he kind of bows up and powers back up, and he comes back in. And, and this just goes on and on and on. And they've got no idea why this prime minister is taking so much interest in them. Why does he continue to want to see us? And so they go back to their father and they say, hey, something weird's going on down there. Uh, we don't know, but the, the prime minister, he's noticed us. He's taken an interest in us. He wants us to bring back Benjamin. And, and the father says, oh, no, 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 no. Benjamin's the youngest son, the, the brother of Joseph, the full brother of Joseph. And, and the father says, no, 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 we, we can't do that. The last time you took one of my young sons, it didn't turn out so well. So, so no, Benjamin can't go. And, and they said, well, he's not going to sell us any more grain if we don't. And so eventually, they, they take Benjamin, and they're all in the room, all the brothers, the, the, the 11 brothers, and then there's Joseph, the 12th. But they don't know it's him. And Joseph sends everybody else, all the other Egyptians that are in the room, he, he sends them out of the room. And, and maybe he takes off his big e Egyptian headdress, we, we don't know, but he looks at them and he says to his brothers, I am Joseph, your brother. I think this is probably one of the most dramatic scenes in all of, uh, of history, in all of the Old Testament, in all of literature for that matter. It says, I am Joseph, your brother. And there, face down, Judah's thinking, what would I do if the roles were reversed? What would I do to the man who sold me as a teenager, thinking that that would be the end of me? And now I have the power to take his life. What would I do? And Judah knows what he would do. Because Judah knows his character. Judah knew his self-centeredness that had driven him his entire life. That, that he'd never been broken. That he'd never confessed. That he'd never allowed any of the other boys to tell the truth about what had actually happened to their younger brother. And there he is face down before the man that has power over his life and death. And Joseph says to him, get up. Get up. I forgive you. In fact, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your families. I'm going to take care of, of your herds. That's, you know, I'm going to protect our wealth, our family wealth. I, I'm going to, I want you to go get dad, bring him back. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to take care of our families for generations. And then later Joseph would say this. He said, you know what? I think God put me here. That God used what you intended for evil for good. And here's the word that's used in Genesis. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Get this, before the New Testament. It's, it's powerful. Joseph says, I believe God put me here to save many. God put me here to save many. I, I will save your life. I'm going to save your family's life. I'm going to save the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Joseph is a picture of a Savior. And God looks down and says, I think I'll skip over the Savior. And I'll go with a liar and a thief. I'm going to bring my son into the world, the Messiah, the perfect Messiah, into the world through Judah, not Joseph. And Matthew underscores this little snippet of history in his genealogy. Do you know why? Because on that day, on his, on his face, 
When Judah's face down, Judah was a picture of you. And he was a picture of me. And that's the point of the story of Jesus. He's the picture of a person who deserved one thing and got something else. He's a picture of a person who was in the process of learning, and listen to this, that that God's grace is available, that God's grace is, is even available to people who have never made themselves available to God. That God's grace and mercy and forgiveness is available to people who have never made themselves available to God. Judah never broke. Judah never confessed. Judah never repented. He never apologized. And suddenly, at the pinnacle of the story, Joseph gives Judah the opposite of what he deserved. God decided to skip Joseph, the righteous brother, and choose Judah, the unrighteous. And it was through Judah that God brought his son into the world. Now that's remarkable, isn't it? That's the point of the story of Christmas. It's the, it's the point of the story of Jesus that, that, never eat, that never ever, even in the Old Testament, has anyone ever expected to come to God with the platform or the standing of his, of his or her own righteousness. That's never been the plan, alright? It's never been the plan. And, and neither did God ever intend for anyone, regardless of his or her sin, to say, hey, I will never be at peace with God because of what I've done. I will never have peace with God because uh, of what, I've, what I haven't done. I'll never have peace with God because of the sin and the shame that I carry in my past. I've got these secrets and, and I can't do anything about them. I can't change the past. I'm trying to make up for the future and it's just not working out. It's just not good enough. God never intended that for the past. God never intended for our relationship to be with Him based on what we have or what we haven't done. From the very beginning, the very beginning, God gives us a picture of what it means to have grace and mercy and forgiveness. Because what God knew about the human soul is this, is that self-righteousness has never made a person better. That, That... Fear of God as it relates to self-righteousness has never made a person better. And and promising to change and promising to do better does nothing about your past. It doesn't change anything. It does nothing about your secrets. It does nothing about the brokenness that you've created in other people's lives. It just doesn't. Your only hope and my only hope has nothing to do with what I've done and everything to do with what has been done for me. And so Matthew sets out to start the Christmas story. And how does he begin? He says, before we get to the Jesus part, that's the good part, we're going to get there. But before we even get to the Jesus part, before we even get to the New Testament, I want to remind you of how it's always been that throughout history, God has chosen the broken people, the messed up people, the people with with a past, the people with secrets, the people who have created disappointments for other people. Those are the people that God has always chosen. And at any point in their lives when they recognize it, that they had, they had access to God, that they had standing with God, not based on what they had done or hadn't done, but based on what had been done. And in the New Testament, what was being done for them. Isn't that amazing? So that's your story. And it's my story. Here's the great news. We are the point of Christmas. God came in the world to extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. God's grace is available to even to those who have never made ourselves available to Him. And you know what I've discovered personally? And what many of you have probably discovered too? You know what the men and women and the teenagers and the singles and the old people and the young people 
who, who begin to approach God with this mindset that, that it's, it's not about what I've done, it's about what He's done. It's not about anything that's been done, that I've done on my own, it's all about what He's done for me. When that shapes our worldview, when, when that becomes our perspective, when that shapes our God view, that, that begins to change us on the inside. And, and the men and women who have begun to approach God based on what God has done for them, that based on what God has given them that they don't deserve, those are the men and the women who find the grace to deal with their past. They're the men and women who, who find the grace to forgive themselves. They're the men and women who, who discover the right way at the right time through the right approach to be able to, to, to begin to mend broken relationships, to fix broken fences. It never begins, listen to me, it, it never begins with, here's what, what I've done and here's what I promised to do. It never begins that way, okay? It always begins with, here's what's been done for me, on behalf of me, through somebody else. Look, this isn't a new message. It just got highlighted when Jesus came into the world to die and to pay for the sins of all mankind. And so here's my question as we wrap up. Do you have a secret? Do you have a secret? Are you a person who would say, you know what? I don't know that I could ever have peace with God. Because I don't know how to fix my past. I don't know how to go back and undo and unlive and, and try to pay back. And, and, you know, I try to pay back and I try to make up for it, but I just can't seem to forgive myself. It, is that you? Well, I got great news. It, it's, it's Christmas. I got great news. God has sent his son into the world. And his grace is available even to those of us who have never made ourselves available to our Heavenly Father. Look, it doesn't... <laughs> Our, our Heavenly Father never asked us to, to begin a relationship with Him by saying, hey, I'm going to clean, I, I, I'm just going to get my act together. I'm just going to get my act cleaned up. It never begins that way. It begins just as it did, and please don't miss this, it begins just as it did that day 3,500 years ago or so when Judah looked up at his brother and he decided that some way, somehow, he was going to ex accept exactly what he didn't deserve. That's how relationships of grace and mercy and forgiveness always begin so today god says to those of you with the past those of us with past those of you with secrets those of you with things that you, you plan to take to your grave god simply says this i'm inviting you to simply accept what i've done for you before you try to do anything about what you've done to other people or yourself i don't want god says i don't want our sin to your sin to separate us relationally any longer because i sent my son into the world once and for all to fix all of that for everybody. And so Judah became the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus the Christ. And this isn't a new message. Christmas is God's way of underscoring an age-old message that no one has access to the Father through his or her own goodness. Access to the Father is always through grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it's to that that we've all been invited. Let's pray together.